I'll read Exodus 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered the flock. When the girls returned to Raoul, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Raoul asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Sephora to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Thank you, Esther, and good morning, everyone. Good to see you all, particularly if you're new this morning. It's lovely to have you along with us. Um, we are starting a new series in the book of Exodus, as Andrew has already said, and this is going to take us through all the way to Christmas, so a good lengthy um, series and time in the book. Now, Exodus is one of the most exciting books in the whole Bible, I would say, uh, it's a gripping story full of drama and conflict, uh, ups and downs. I think it's a testament to the power of Exodus that it is, um, it's led to at least three Hollywood blockbuster titles that have been based on, on the book. So uh, there is uh, The Ten Commandments. This was made in 1956 with uh, cutting edge visual effects. 
Charlton Heston, they're playing uh, Moses. This was the most expensive film ever made at the time, um, 1956. Then uh, fast forward a little bit, we've got The Prince of Egypt in 1998 uh, by DreamWorks, a much-loved animated version. This is uh, particularly faithful to the original source material in Exodus. Um, and then in 2014, there was Exodus, Gods and Kings, which is less faithful to the um, original material. Uh, but it has some great action sequences. So, you know, Exodus is an action-packed story. And so it's going to be a really fun one for us to get into over the next term. Um, but I have to say, Exodus is not merely entertainment, okay? So each week when you come here, we're not going to be passing out popcorn for you to eat and enjoy whilst we hear the story. The book of Exodus is in the Bible. It is God's words to us. And it so happens that Exodus itself has unique contributions to our understanding of the Christian faith. Here are three ways that Exodus contributes to our understanding of Jesus and the gospel. Firstly, in the book of Exodus, there is the central image of salvation in the Old Testament. It's the key saving event in the Bible um, before we get to Jesus. The gospel in the New Testament is described using Exodus language. And so if you want to see in vivid picture terms what it means to be rescued by Jesus, read Exodus. Secondly, Exodus teaches us not just what God has done, but who God is. You know, the Lord Jesus said that this is eternal life, that we know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We don't just want to know what God has done. We want to know who he is. What is he like? What's his nature? Exodus will teach us that. Thirdly, Exodus teaches us about the whole Christian life. We think of Exodus primarily as a story of people being freed from slavery. But Exodus carries on long after the people of Israel have been freed. It tells about what they've been freed for. What happens after their freedom. It shows them, as, it shows them in their life as God's people. And so it will show us in our life as God's people, the Christian life. How should we live so Exodus has all sorts of things to say to us. This book is a feast. So it's going to be exciting for us to go through it together. So let's dig in, shall we? Exodus 1 and 2. So firstly, God's people oppressed. Look down with me. Keep your Bibles open if you've shut them. We're going to be referring to the passages there in the first two chapters. And if you look right at the beginning of chapter 1, Exodus begins where the previous book of the Bible, Genesis, finishes off. Now, Genesis, if you don't know, is taken up largely with the story of one family. So God had appeared to a man named Abraham, and he'd said to Abraham that he was going to um, give him these amazing, or he promised him three amazing things. Firstly, that he was going to have many descendants. He was going to become a great nation. Secondly, his people were going to have a land in which they were going to go and live in, their own land. And thirdly, that his people were going to be a blessing. So God had chosen Abraham and his offspring, but for the purpose of blessing the entire world. And so um, as we look at the beginning of Exodus, we see a list of some of Abraham's descendants, the list of names there. And by the end of Genesis, Abraham's family have come to be in Egypt. 
There are 70 of them. And one of the family, Joseph, is a governor in Egypt. He's become a high-ranking politician. And so the family is 70 strong. They've, they've grown. But look down at verse 6. It says that after Joseph and, and his brothers have died, this fledgling little people has multiplied. They've become great in number, just as God promised Abraham many years prior. So that's a good thing. The people of Israel are multiplying. But... This is happening in Egypt, and to the Egyptians, this is a bit of a problem. Let's look at verse 8. It says, a new king has come to power. He has no regard for Joseph or his people. And so to him, seeing this group of Israelites multiplying his land is a threat. Verse 9, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So to Pharaoh's mind, Egypt has a bit of an immigration problem. The nation is being filled up with foreigners. And if Egypt doesn't watch out, these Israelites, also called Hebrews, may take over. Now, he's not the first person to fear about that in his land, is he? But his solution is pretty savage, enslavement. So the idea, I think, is that if they oppress the Israelites, if they keep them servile and weak, they'll have no power, and then they won't rise up against him and his nation. And so the Israelites are put into forced labor. Verse 9 says they are forced to build two new cities from the ground up. Now, you would think that that would curb the growth of the Israelite people, but not at all. Look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. So enslavement doesn't stop them growing. Their numbers keep increasing. But if anything, that means that the hatred towards the Israelites and the fear of them by the Egyptians increased all the more. And so we see in this chapter a slow progression and escalation of hostility towards the Israelites. So verse 12 and 13, look down, they were worked even harder. Look at the language it uses to describe um, what's happening to the Israelites here. So verse 13, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor... The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. It doesn't stop there. There is more escalation. So if forced labor was a kind of subtle way to try and keep the population down, Pharaoh turns to more active methods. Verse 15, he orders two Hebrew midwives to ensure that any baby boys that are born to the Israelites are killed. Now these midwives, they're having none of it. Uh, they manage to withstand Pharaoh, and God blesses them for it. Now, it's interesting, in the text, we're given the names, the personal names of these two women, Shipra and Pua. Now, we are not given the name of Pharaoh. We are not even given the name of Moses' mum or sister in these chapters, but we are given the names of these two midwives. And it's as if the writer of Exodus, who is probably Moses himself, is saying, look at these two women, because they are absolute legends, 
They fear God. They do not care what Pharaoh says. And they are blessed. Look at verse 20. The people multiply. They keep growing. No matter what Pharaoh tries. And so then the persecution goes to the next level. Like a pressure cooker, Pharaoh keeps turning up the heat on this people. They have to endure more and more. And this time there is no attempt for Pharaoh to hide his murderous intentions. Verse 22, the order is given that Hebrew baby boys are to be drowned by being thrown in the Nile. Escalation. And perhaps this reminds us of um, the escalating, for example, of anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany in the 30s. So if you were a Jewish person living in Germany in those days, first you would have been banned from becoming a civil servant, then you were banned from becoming a citizen. Jewish shops then were boycotted, then destroyed. The next level, Jewish people were forced to live in ghettos. They were wearing, told to wear yellow stars so it would distinguish them from the rest of the population. They were sent to internment camps, and then finally, the gas chambers of Auschwitz. Escalating persecution. And this is what the Israelites are facing here in Exodus. And so the question arises, well, where is the Lord in all of this? Where is God? Do you notice in chapter one, in general, there isn't much reference to God, certainly not in terms of what he thinks about the Israelite persecution. So he, we can see that he's helping the people to multiply. He blesses the midwives. But even so, the Israelites, they have to face slavery for years, years and years, even as their suffering increases and increases. Now, most of us haven't experienced anything like what the Israelites experienced, and yet we all face days of hardship, days of darkness, like they did. And maybe something of the plight of the Israelites in some way resonates with your experience, if you're going through a hard time at the moment. You may feel oppressed or brought low without any agency seemingly to change your circumstances. You may feel in a season of life where things are just getting worse and not getting better. Perhaps you can identify with some of those words in verses 13 and 14 to describe your experiences. Harsh. Bitter. Maybe you've been treated ruthlessly. And again, particularly for Christians, the added pressure is wondering where God is in it all. Is he absent? Or worse, is he present but not caring, not wanting to do anything about it. So chapter one of Exodus sets up the suffering of the Israelites. But then in chapter two, we see that this Israelite suffering has not gone unnoticed, quite the opposite. So secondly, the God who sees, the God who sees. Let's look at chapter two. Now, there's a little theme in chapter two. There are three incidents in this chapter where someone sees, particularly they see the suffering of Israelites, and they care. So the first instant is at the birth of Moses. Now remember the context. It is national policy that all baby boys who are Israelite are to be drowned. 
That's the law. And we're told at the beginning of chapter 2 that an unnamed woman gives birth to a son who will become Moses. She loves Moses. She wants to keep him from harm. And so she hides him away for three months. But after this, the baby's growing. It's harder to kind of keep him a secret in her home. So she decides to hide him through a different method. She creates a basket, puts Moses in the basket, and then um, sends him down the river. Now, this might seem not much better than throwing the child in the river to be drowned. Uh, But there's no reason to think that um, Moses' mother was abandoning him. Perhaps more likely, she was putting Moses in the basket to send him down to a part of the river where he probably wouldn't be seen, and then later on, she can come to him and feed him and look after him away from the house where it might be suspicious. And we're told that um, Moses' sister follows along to see what happens to her brother. Anyway, the baby is sent down the Nile. And then verse 5, what are the chances? The daughter of Pharaoh himself comes across this basket. In verse 6, she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. So Pharaoh's daughter sees this Hebrew child alone and upset. This is a baby who should be dead, should be drowned. And she would have surely worked out what happened. She would have guessed that a desperate mother had gone to extreme lengths to try and save her child. And she looks on him and she has compassion. You know, Israelites, remember, they were seen as a threat to the Egyptians. And yet she looks past the prejudice to the humanity of this baby and decides to save him. She connects with the family of the child, Moses' sister and mum. They come to an arrangement. The mum will be paid to nurse her own son. And then Pharaoh's daughter will adopt him as her own. And this kind of ensures the safety of their child. And it's potentially quite brave. Remember, it's Pharaoh who has issued this order that the baby should die. His own daughter is choosing, in one case, to save this one child. And she calls him Moses. She sees and she has compassion. The second example of seeing, it comes from Moses himself. Look down with me at verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses has grown up in the Egyptian household. It's his home. But one day he tries to get a sense of how his own ethnic people, the Israelites, are doing. And he notices their suffering. Verse 11, he sees, he sees the Egyptian attacking the Israelite. And he ends up killing that Egyptian. We'll come back to that shortly. But again, for the second time, Israelite pain is not going unnoticed. First Pharaoh's daughter, then Moses. They see and they care. And then the third example is right at the end of chapter 2. Look at verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. 
So here is the first explicit reference to how the Lord cares, what he thinks about the suffering that his people are going through. He has seen it, and he's concerned. It's funny, you might read those verses and sort of wonder what God's been up to till then, up until that point. It seems like it's only when the people start praying and crying out to him that he sort of, oh, he remembers. It's as if he was four episodes into a Netflix binge and then he gets a phone call and he's like, oh yeah, I was supposed to look after the Israelites. Better go and do that. But that is not what's going on. God doesn't forget. God does not forget. The reason why it's put in these terms is to show the power of prayer. When the people cry out to God, God hears them. And he sees them. When we cry out to God, he hears, he sees, he cares. Most of us carry a deep desire to be seen and to be heard. Particularly when things are hard in life and we feel oppressed and hard-pressed. We want to know that others have noticed us. We want to know that we're not just invisible to everyone else around. I've got a friend um, who, a year or two back, um, one of her immediate family committed suicide. And as you can imagine, for her, that was devastating. And at the time when it happened, her friends, particularly from church, they gathered around her, they supported her, they looked out for her. They rallied around as you would expect. But as is you know, naturally the case in these sorts of situations, as the weeks and the months rolled on, the level of support dropped down, which is you know, to be expected. But it got to such a point that my friend felt like no, like no one cared at all anymore. No one asked her how she was doing with this bereavement. It felt to her like she was expected to have gotten over it by now. She carried an enduring pain, and it wasn't being seen by other people. And perhaps that resonates with some of you and some of the burdens and difficulties that you face. You know, many of us carry hardships and we feel invisible to others in those hardships. It's difficult, isn't it? You know, even when we see friends, people who we care for and who are well-connected with us, we can have a laugh with them, we can see them, we can do the hobbies. But sometimes those hard things on our lives still don't get addressed or acknowledged. Sometimes people know about your hardships, but they don't talk to you about it or ask you about it. Sometimes they don't know because we haven't told them And perhaps we should tell them and open up about our struggles. But even then, sometimes that's not easy, is it? That's complex. And for many of us, we fear that even if we did try to talk about what's going on in our experiences, well, others might not understand it anyway. That's the difficulty. We may feel invisible. But the truth here in Exodus 2 is that whatever it is that you have faced or dealt with, there is someone who knows and someone who sees. God sees you and he has compassion. 
You know, if, if God was physically here, imagine that he sat next to you and you have a little chat after the service. You know, he would be able to put into words the struggles that you face better than you could. He could articulate them better than you. He knows. But he doesn't just know, he cares. And is concerned and he has compassion. There's a wonderful verse in the Psalms. We sing it as well, don't we? The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. He's compassionate. And what that means is, the upshot is quite simple. We should talk to him about the things that are hard. You know, he hears you. Your prayers don't just float into the ether. They don't bounce off the ceiling. He listens. You know, if the cries of the groaning Israelites went up to God, so do ours. It's difficult, isn't it? Sometimes we go through the motions in prayer. We sort of say the things we feel we should say. There are aspects of what's really going on that we don't really acknowledge or talk about, even to God. But Exodus tells us, speak to him. Cry out about the things on your heart. He sees and he cares. And that leaves us with another question then. If God sees our pain, what is he going to do about it? Well, finally, the unrecognized rescuer. The unrecognized rescuer. Let's have another think about Moses, shall we? Look back to chapter 2, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. We're told later in Acts 7, which we'll read in a second, that Moses is 40 years old at this point. So I think if you watch The Prince of Egypt, it kind of implies that he's maybe in his 20s or something. He's 40 years old. He's a grown man. And at this point, he decides purposefully to look out at how his own people are doing. And he sees their hardship, the labor, the persecution. And it's difficult. You know, he's grown up in the Egyptian court. He's experienced comfort and security and privilege and a really good education. But when he sees how his people are suffering, he makes a big decision, and that decision is to identify more with them than with Egypt. And this is a turning point in Moses' life. There's no turning back after this. He can't control Zed, this one. Once he crosses that boundary, there's no turning back. He chooses to identify with the Israelites. So Moses steps in. And everything goes wrong. <laughs> Do you see that? He, he sees an Egyptian man beating an Israelite. He steps in. He kills the Egyptian. Hides the body. He thinks he's done it stealthily. But then the next day, he sees two Israelites who are also in a fight. He asks them what's going on. And he gets a bit of a salty response. Do you see that? Verse 14. The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses, at this point, he realizes he's been found out. He's been rumbled. He then also finds out, next verse, that Pharaoh, his own adoptive father, wants him dead. So Moses has to run away. So much for being the knight in shining armor. It says that Moses goes to a land called Midian. And God looks after him in Midian. He rescues 
um, a group of sisters at a well. He's brought into the family of a man called Ruel, who's later known as Jethro. He marries one of uh, Ruel's daughters, Zipporah, and they have a family. God looks after him, even as he's in exile. But it's hard, isn't it? Verse 22, he names his son Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. There's an irony, isn't there? You know, growing up, there's been this tension between Moses, is he Egyptian? Is he Israelite? I'm sure those sorts of questions would have ended up in his head. And when he finally chooses to associate with the Israelites, he's away from both peoples. He has to flee. He's now in Midian, and he's got a Midianite family. He's a foreigner away from home. It's all kind of messed up. It's not what he expected. Now, it's common reading Exodus 2 to put the blame on Moses here, particularly in terms of how he treated that Egyptian. Wasn't it reckless, unnecessary to kill an Egyptian? Possibly. But if you look at how the New Testament views this episode, you might be quite surprised as to the conclusion it draws. So in Acts 7, there's a bit of a commentary on this aspect of Moses' life. And it says this, This is verses 23 to 25. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Listen to this. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Later in the same passage, verse 35. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. That's the burning bush. We'll be looking at that next week. Do you see what Acts 7 is saying? Moses, when he went to rescue that Israelite from the Egyptian, he had some sort of understanding that God had called him to help Israel. And he expected that the other Israelites would see that. But they didn't. They rejected him, saying things like, who made you ruler and judge over me? And so Acts 7 is not primarily criticizing Moses for having killed the Egyptian, although perhaps that was reckless and unwise. More, it criticizes the Israelites for not recognizing who Moses was. And it sets up a theme that will recur throughout Moses' life. You know, throughout his leadership, his people, the Israelites, will struggle to accept him and recognize his leadership. But isn't that a tragedy? Think again, the Israelites, they're suffering in slavery, they're desperately in need of relief, but they're unable to recognize the very person who God had given them. Moses was an unrecognized rescuer. Let's think a little bit about our own hardships that we face. You know, in our suffering, we have all sorts of ideas about what we think we need, what we need most. If we're isolated and lonely, what we need are loving friends or a partner. If we feel like a failure, what, we just want to succeed in life, see something turn good. If we have difficult relationships at work or in our family, we just feel like it might be better if those relationships got better. 
or at least some people just started to shut up. If we're in physical pain or in grief, we just want that grief and pain to go away. And these are all completely reasonable things to want. There's nothing wrong with that per se. And actually, God in his grace, he often gives us those things. We can all think of times, can't we, of when circumstances were really difficult, but then they changed for the better. We had a hard season of life, but then we were delivered out of it. God is gracious to us. But what we need is something more foundational than our circumstances changing. The Bible in Jeremiah has this vision of people like a tree. And and this tree is in a desert, essentially. There's scorching heat that withers all other plants. But this tree, despite the heat, has deep roots. It has access to water, and it's able to be green and healthy and bear fruit, even though it's in the desert. And the Bible says that we can be like that tree, even when the circumstances, the scorching sun, even though those circumstances are hard, we can still have joy. We can still blossom, even when the difficult things in our lives remain. Now, of course, we want our circumstances to change, and Christianity offers a way in which, or shows us that there will be a day when all our sufferings will cease as God's people. Our circumstances will change. All suffering will be done away with. But it also offers a way for us to remain grounded and composed even within those difficult circumstances. And that is through our rescuer, the Lord Jesus. Like Moses, Jesus, um, as the divine son of God, lived in uh, privilege and glory, safety and prestige of heaven, But he saw us, and in his compassion, he came down, he became one of us. He experienced um, the brokenness of this world as we do, the hardship, the suffering. He went to the cross, but he died and rose again so that one day all of his people might enjoy eternal life with him. He is God's rescuer, and he provides that way out, that rescue at the end of time from all hardship in this world. But not just in the future, Now, Jesus is able to give us hope and joy. He's able to strengthen us, even when things are difficult. He is whom God has given us as a rescuer, not just in the future, but now. He is the rescuer God has sent in his compassion for us. The danger is that we think we know better than God as to what we need. And we miss the one whom he's given to us. That's our danger in suffering. You know, Jesus, he describes himself as the bread of life. He's to be feasted on, eaten, in the sense that we enjoy time with him. We think about who he is. We receive his blessings that he has for us. As we contemplate what he's like, his love, his presence, his care, as we enjoy those things, we are strengthened and nourished. We can enjoy him and find hope, even in our hardships. Some of you may have heard of Jeremy Marshall. Um, He was uh, an evangelist, a church leader, um, a writer. He died last month. Um, 
He had a long battle with cancer. He had actually been diagnosed with cancer in 2013, I think, or at least he was told that he would probably die around 2013. And so he lived, you know, 10, 10 years on from that um, initial diagnosis, which is a wonderful thing, uh, but also a hard thing, isn't it? Because that's a 10-year-plus 10, 10 battle with cancer, going through chemo, um, having to deal with the hardships of that life. Um, but he was a Christian, and in the midst of that hardship, he held on fast to the truth of Jesus. He wrote this in a blog post um, about a year ago. He said, there are two aspects of who Jesus is and his character that particularly appeal to me. The first is this. I have no choice about suffering. But Jesus, on the other hand, chose to suffer voluntarily and freely on the cross because he loves me. And he wants to rescue us. Secondly, Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. That means that he knows what it's like to suffer because he's human, but that he can also rescue us from our suffering because he's God. To his very end, he was a man who enjoyed Jesus, who put his hope in him for strength every day. And we can too. He is the rescuer whom God has given us. Are you looking for help with your hard circumstances? Well, God has seen you, he has compassion, and he's acted by sending his son to be our strength today and forever. One more thing, just before we pray. Um, you may be here, and you may not be sure what to think of all this God stuff, all these things about Jesus. You may not be sure if there's a God up there, maybe, um, Christianity may not make a lot of sense to you at the moment. Let me encourage you by looking again at verse 23. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. So there the Israelites are crying to God. You know, in this time, we have a lot of reason to think that the Israelites don't really know much about who God is at this point. Part of the story of Exodus is God revealing who he is, his character and his nature. So the Israelites, they're crying out to a God who they probably don't know that much don't know that well and yet God still hears them and he still sends his rescuer for them and so what I would say is why don't you pray to him too why don't you ask for his help perhaps ask him to show himself to you if he's real and out there he answers such prayers and come back next week because we're going to be looking more at Exodus and how God reveals himself. Next week's a pretty key passage. I'm quite excited about it. There is a God who cares, who sees, and who has sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to be our hope, now and in the future, when all suffering will be gone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who is not detached from us, uh, who looks on us in all our struggles, in all our fears, in all our pain, and you see it. You, you see those circumstances, you understand what goes through our heads. Lord Jesus, as one who has embraced humanity and pain, you know firsthand what pain is like and suffering is like. And Lord Jesus, you give yourself to us 
Help us to receive you today. For those of us who are having hard days, a hard season, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen, strengthen us, strengthen them. And may we not miss you as our rescuer, even in our difficult days. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.